everyone, and welcome to Tell Me About Podcast, where each week, two nerdy friends deep dive random topics. I'm Laura. And I'm Tom. And this is episode number 14. So this week, we're going to conclude our discussion of game show scandals with part two. So as a reminder, you can see our episode visuals on social media at the Tell Me About Podcast. So we're going to have some really cool things up there. So highly recommend that you go check those out. So the first scandal that I want to talk about today involves a game show contestant who wasn't who he said he was. Super Password was a show in which two teams of two, one celebrity and one ordinary person, would give clues to each other in order to guess a password. It actually reminds me a lot of a $100,000 pyramid. I know it is a little, it's different visually, but I think the concept is very similar. Super Password was a spinoff of the show Password and Password Plus, and it aired from 1984 to 1989. In January of 1988, a contestant named Patrick Quinn auditioned for the show. Show producer Robert Sherman later said that Quinn was an interesting, colorful character who went through the normal screening process like any other contestant. Quinn said that he worked for the CIA and was based in Alaska, though Sherman thought this was a little odd that he would admit that this is his occupation. Apparently that's who they wrote the song Secret Agent Man about. Quinn, 38, was selected as a contestant and went on to appear in four episodes of the show and won $58,000, one of the biggest prizes in the show's history. Shortly after his appearance on the show, Quinn contacted the producers and said that he wanted to expedite his winnings if possible. He said that he was leaving the country on a mission with the CIA to go to Turkey and that he would be away from anywhere between 6 and 18 months. Standard practice at the time, was that winners were usually mailed a check of their winnings, so this was a bit unusual. Producers agreed to have him come to the studio to pick up his winnings. Upon arrival, though, Quinn sensed that something was off and attempted to flee the premises. What he realized fairly quickly was that two federal agents were waiting for him in the studio to arrest him on fraud charges. Patrick Quinn's real name was actually Carrie Ketchum, who was wanted for credit card fraud in Alaska and was also the target of a separate FBI investigation. Though he attempted to flee from federal agents, he didn't make it that far. Feds caught up with him only a few minutes later when they found him standing on a toilet in a stall in a men's bathroom in the studio. Catch him more like caught him. Like, did he really think that was going to work for him? If I tuck my legs on the toilet seat, they won't see my legs. Who's going to know? I mean, if that was his only option, like, I get it. But you're not very clever, dude. You're just not. Like, did they not think someone's going to go like this? I guess not. They can't see my legs, but the door is somehow closed. I wonder why that is. Yeah, that's the dead giveaway, I guess. You walk in the bathroom. It's like trying to, that's like trying to hide by taking the numbers off your house. Like, if you know you're on the lamb, like, going to pick up your prize money seems like a very opportune time for them to get you. I don't think that it was well thought out on his part, but he doesn't seem like the brightest guy either. 
Carrie Ketchum was born in Ohio, and he was never too far from trouble. In his young adulthood, he worked as a sheriff's deputy, though he was fired not long after that for stealing from the evidence room. He later spent 18 months in jail on an unrelated charge before he bought a BMW from a car dealership under a false name and drove straight off the lot from Illinois, making his way to Alaska. While in Alaska, Ketchum racked up $25,000 in credit card debt and also carried out several fraudulent schemes, including collecting life insurance money on his ex-wife, who he said died while flying in the Air Force. What a son of a bitch, you know? He also swindled a bank manager in a mail-order fraud scheme. That same bank manager was supposedly the one who contacted police when he saw Ketchum's appearance on Super Password. Through the contestant screening process, he provided a social security number and an Alaska driver's license under the name Patrick Quinn, so producers had no reason to question the legitimacy of his identity. Ironically, during this four-episode run, one of the passwords that he had to guess was the word phony. Ketchum wound up taking a plea deal in 1988 and did five years in prison. There's not much about his life after his time in prison, and it's unclear if he's still alive today. Executive Vice President of Mark Goodson Productions in New York, Jerry Chester, said at the time, and I'm paraphrasing, it really took some balls to go on national TV pretending to be somebody that you weren't. Mark Goodson Productions said that because Ketchum played the game as a contestant under false pretenses, he should not get the prize money. NBC said at the time that they may have a legal obligation to pay out the money to catch him anyway, as he did play the game fairly and he didn't cheat in any way in the actual game. After a few months of back and forth, the production company and NBC decided not to pay him his winnings. Ketchum then sued them for millions of dollars in extra damages. Show producers took their case to the media by portraying him as the criminal he was undeserving of the prize money. A judge dismissed Ketchum's lawsuit and he never saw a dime of his prize money. Producers of the show did make a public offer to award the prize money to anyone who could prove themselves to be a man named Patrick Quinn, but nobody by that name ever stepped up to claim the money. I'm going to show you a picture of Patrick slash Carrie. He actually looks like a nice guy. So, you know, and, and I noticed, and it looks like there's like a bandage on his wrist. So I don't know if that was faked as well, or he actually had something going on, but if you can see him there, so he looks like a nice guy, a little bit like Charles Manson, I guess, but. So he decides he first goes to pick up his own money. Then he tries to hide in the bathroom. And then he sues them in court by putting his legal name on a document. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. Would you represent this guy? I plead the fifth. For our next scandal, we're going to go across the pond to Wales, UK. Again, this one, this one's a little rough, so just, you know, proceed with caution. Bullseye was a British game show that aired from 1981 to 1995. The premise of the show was for that three contestants to compete in a dart-throwing competition while they also answered trivia questions for cash and prizes. 
1989, a contestant appeared on the show by the name of John Cooper. Two decades later, the world would find out about his dark secrets. John Cooper was born in Wales on September 3rd, 1944. Now, I couldn't find any information about his childhood, and most articles in the documentaries that I watched started in his late teens. Between the ages of 17 and 21, John was charged with multiple crimes, including theft of a vehicle, assaulting a police officer, drunken disorderly conduct, and assault. By 1978, he was working as a farm laborer when he won about $90,000 and a car in a newspaper competition. He apparently drank and gambled his money away, getting into a lot of fights along the way. When his money was gone, he started robbing to make money. It was in 1985 when John committed his first double murder. John broke into the home of siblings Richard and Helen Thomas. His main motive was likely robbery, but it is thought that Helen caught him breaking in and he shot her. Richard came home later while John was still in the house and he met the same fate as his sister. John then set the house on fire to cover up his crimes, and he fled. John allegedly continued to commit more robberies and possibly more murders in the years following. In May of 1989, he got his chance to appear on Bullseye, which aired to an audience of 17 million viewers. He was said to be skilled at dart throwing, though he wasn't that smart. He wound up losing and didn't go home with any money, likely due to his sense of brazenness and arrogance. His appearance on the show would later come back to haunt him. A month later, in June of 1989, he committed another double murder. Peter and Gwenda Dixon were an older married couple who were camping along the coast of Pembrokeshire. While out for a walk, John ambushed them, tied them up, took their credit card and Gwenda's ring, before shooting them at point-blank range with a sawed-off shotgun. Two days later, their son reported them missing after they didn't return home. John pawned Gwenda's ring and used their debit card to withdraw $300 from the ATM. That's all their lives were worth to him, was $300, and apparently he didn't even get much money when he pawned the ring. So it's like, that's horrific. I mean, you're dealing with a really depraved heart. Yeah. The media dubbed these murders the Pembrokeshire murders or the coastal murders as the story was big news for weeks. The case went cold and John was able to evade police yet again. Seven years later, in March of 1996, John encountered five teenagers walking in the woods when he held them at gunpoint, sexually assaulted two of the teenage girls, and he fired a gun, allegedly, but didn't kill any of them. John's luck in evading police ended in 1998 when he was arrested on a number of robbery charges. He was found guilty and sentenced to 14 years in prison, but would ultimately only serve 10 years. Investigators revisited the cold case of Peter and Gwenda Dixon in 2006. There was little to no DNA to be tested, but investigators turned to clothing fibers to find their killer. At this time, they already suspected John Cooper of these murders, but could only prove a circumstantial case. They needed solid forensics to take him to trial. Shortly before John's release from prison in 2009, investigators met with him to question him about the double murder, 
hoping that he would confess or slip up on some detail that could tie him to the murders. John denied any involvement and was released from prison in January of 2009. In April of that year, investigators got the breakthrough that they needed. They were able to tie a blood spot on a pair of shorts that he owned to one of the victims, and they also found the gun that was used in one of the murders. John was arrested again in May of 2009. It wasn't until 2011 that he went on trial. The trial lasted nine weeks and included footage from the Bullseye game show that was compared to the police sketch that was made of him as a suspect. It was pretty much identical. We will put it on our social media, but it is it was is very, very close. It's it's him for sure. Here's what he looks like. He looks like the what the fuck meme guy. He does. I'm gonna show you a picture of him next to the police sketch that they did, and it's it's pretty close. Looks like Hall and Oates, private eyes, they're watching you. I just thought that the fact that his appearance on the show really contributed to bringing him down. I don't know. I thought that well, that, was... well that in the perm. That is, it's a tight perm, isn't it? That That's a Brillo pad on there. John Cooper became known as the bullseye serial killer. His son, Andrew, testified against him at trial and confirmed John's history of violence. As a part of his defense, John would portray himself to be a good, sociable guy who liked playing darts. I am afraid to throw darts. I'm, I feel like I would miss throwing a dart and like hit myself in the foot. I could see that, actually. Yeah. Well, I feel like I would not be coordinated enough to do it. The same with like axe throwing. You should never participate in axe throwing for everybody's safety. Darts aren't as dangerous. I mean, you don't want to be hit with one, but... Yeah, darts only cause a puncture wound. Exactly, exactly. You know, axe throwing, that's going to take you out. So please don't ever <laughs> throw axes. <laughs> he would also suggest that his son was responsible for the murders that he was accused of. Now, what do you think about him trying to throw his son under the bus? Well, I mean, when you're already a, scu a, a scuzzball to that degree, does anything really surprise you? I was a little surprised, actually. I mean, because sometimes you see these serial killers, they're like like BTK, for example, the BTK serial killer. Nobody knew. And his, his family adored him. I think he had two kids and a wife. And like, he was fantastic to them by all accounts. And, you know, when this came out, they were so surprised. So I've seen cases like that where they are really good to their families, but clearly not. His son said he was very abusive towards him. And then you know, like I said, at the trial, it was, you know, try, trying to throw anything against the wall to deflect blame from himself, you know. And that doesn't surprise me one bit. It took the jury three days to convict him in May of 2011, and he was sentenced to four life sentences with no possibility of parole. After a 25-year investigation, John was finally brought to justice. He has never admitted his guilt for his crimes and continues to say that investigators are trying to frame him in order to clear the cases. One investigator described John as cold, controlled evil. It's also been said that John is a diagnosed psychopath, although I have to say you can't diagnose somebody as a psychopath or with psychopathy. Antisocial personality disorder is probably the closest diagnostic fit and there is a checklist to determine traits of uh, a psychopath, but you can't formally diagnose somebody with that. 
Although he's never been convicted for any other crimes, he may be linked to at least five other murders. He has lost all appeals to overturn his conviction. He was, again, I don't think he was as bad as the dating game serial killer. He obviously didn't have as many victims, but this this guy was evil. I mean, he just was so heartless. That pretty much says it all. For our next scandal, we're going to stay in the UK and discuss a man who was less evil and more stupid. In 2001, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire was a wildly popular show, not only in the US, but in the UK as well. Would you go on Millionaire? If it was Sports Millionaire, yes. If it was Regular Millionaire, I think I'd be done in like two questions. No, you're a smart guy. You know random things. I think you do well. I know, but like after I think like a thousand dollars, I think I would like I'd I'd hit the wall. Some of the questions are a bit obscure. I'll give you that, but I think you would do well on that show. The UK game show brought in about twenty million viewers per episode, which was huge at the time. In September of that year, a former British Army major named Charles Ingram went on the show to play for the million dollars. His wife and brother had both been contestants on the show prior, so. The family was very familiar with the game and the production. His wife, Diana, was present in the audience for Charles's game. Charles won the fastest finger competition in which the person to answer a trivia question the fastest out of a handful of potential contestants would get their turn on the show. When in the hot seat, as they called it, Charles answered his first five questions no problem. But on questions six and seven, He used two of his three lifelines, which told show producers that he wasn't going to make it very far. In fact, his performance was so far below average in comparison to other contestants. Due to time constraints of that episode, Charles had to return the following day to finish his individual game. That night, Charles and his wife concocted what they thought was a foolproof plan with another hopeful contestant named Tequin Wittick. The next day, Charles resumed his game at question eight, and this is when the trio's plan was set into motion. After the host read the question and the four possible answers, Charles also repeated the question and read all four answers out loud. A very faint cough could be heard from the audience after one of the answers. Charles got the answer right and moved on to the next question. He got stumped when question 10 came up, and he used his last lifeline to narrow down the options to just two answers. Charles took his time considering the answers and read both options out loud multiple times, leaning towards one of the answers. Unlike question eight, there was silence coming from the audience. The camera cut to his wife Diana at one point, and it shows her coughing after Charles read the other option out loud. In real time at this point, no one on the show suspected anything, She coughed a second time, and Charles quickly switched his answer and moved on to the next question. Producers immediately felt that something was off with the situation, but filming continued. As Charles continued to advance towards the million-dollar question, producers were picking up on subtle behaviors from Charles. On the $250,000 question, a floor assistant noticed that Tequin leaned over to another hopeful contestant to confirm the correct answer. Tequin went on to cough at the appropriate time to indicate to Charles which one was the correct answer. 
it was the $500,000 question that would really raise alarm bells with crew and producers. For this one, Charles was certain of the answer and said that out loud multiple times. Before he could answer with what he thought was the correct answer, Tequin started coughing and mutters no under his breath. He coughed again when Charles read all the answers out loud again, indicating which was the right answer. Are you okay? Are you laughing or crying? (laughs) This is just... Oh, it gets better. It's stupid. It's really stupid. They'd be better off just going, no! I will tell you, I watched... Again, I, I tried to watch all the episodes on these scandals that I could find, and I did watch this episode, and they enhanced the audio, so I think it was louder than it was in real time. But he clearly, he's like, "Uh, uh, no, it's like, are you kidding me? Like, it was very obvious if you went back to listen (laughs) to the audio. Waterloo! (laughs) Charles switched his final answer and got it right. He went on to the million dollar question. Producers noted that Charles' behavior wasn't normal. The fact that he used all his lifelines, how he would read out each answer out loud multiple times. And what he indicated he wanted to answer versus what he actually answered were very different. They looked around for visual cues that would indicate cheating, but didn't find any. And they still didn't realize the timing of Tequin's coughing. On the million dollar question, usually the most exciting part of the show, instead found producers on edge, though they tried to act as normal as possible. Charles himself wasn't acting as this was as big of a deal as it was, which was another red flag. Yet again, Tequin can be heard coughing after the correct answer. Charles won the million dollar prize, and as soon as he came off stage, producers immediately searched him for anything that he could have used to cheat, saying that this was just their standard protocol. Even more suspicious was that Charles and his wife didn't seem happy about the win but instead fought in their dressing room after coming off stage. They didn't celebrate. They didn't call their children to let them know that they had won. Another hopeful contestant near Tequin clocked what they were doing. And you can actually see at the end of Charles's game, this contestant wasn't clapping and he looked really pissed. He told the producers of the show what happened, but they needed to look through the evidence. Producers took a few days to comb through the show footage to piece together what happened. The coughing coming from mostly Tequin was more apparent, and the producers very clearly hear him mutter no under his breath. They picked up on every cough from Tequin and Diana to indicate the right answer for Charles. It didn't make sense for a contestant to keep winning when he insisted he didn't know the answer to most of the questions. Producers thought that any other contestant would have quit after the $125,000 question. Throughout the episode, You can also see Diana making these like subtle faces, like she's furrowing her brow in like annoyance or frustration rather than like nervousness. You can almost see that she's like faking her emotions, like her expressions change very quickly. And it's almost like at first she's like reacting how she thinks she's supposed to react. And then it quickly changes to how she actually is reacting. Like it's if you if anybody goes back and watches this episode, I mean, she's just she's a terrible actress. Well, this wasn't exactly the Globe Theater. No, no, it was not. This is everything old is new again. This is the Houston Astros banging on the trash can. This isn't exactly brain surgeons coming up with this. No. 
you know, oh boy, what a tough question. This was real dumb. After thoroughly reviewing the tapes, they knew that Charles had cheated. They called him at home several days after his appearance and let him know that they suspected him of cheating and were going to contact the police. Charles, Diana, and Tequin were arrested and charged with procuring the execution of valuable securities by deception. They all pled not guilty. Diana insisted that she never met Tequin and didn't know who he was, although you can see during the taping, she looks towards him multiple times throughout the game. So she like switches her gaze from looking at Charles to looking at Tequin. And it's like, once you know what they're doing, like it is so obvious. It's just, they were not good at this. It's nay on the eating che. Charles told anyone who would listen that he knew all the answers and perhaps Tequin was just suffering from allergies. It came out in the four week trial that Charles and Diana had more than $50,000 of debt, strengthening their motive to cheat. All three were found guilty, but none of them served any jail time. Charles and Diana received an 18-month suspended sentence, and Tequin received a 12-month suspended sentence. They were obviously never paid out any prize money. Their greed was essentially their downfall. If Charles had given up and taken the money after the $125,000 question, or even the $250,000 question, they likely wouldn't have gotten caught. They could have argued that, you know, Charles is making lucky guesses or that he did have some knowledge to support his correct answers to the questions. But the fact that he went on to win the million dollars, it was highly suspect to producers based on his behavior alone. Why did the trial take four weeks? (laughs) That's a good question. I don't know. Good question. I didn't find that. People tend to think that when Charles and Diana were arguing in their dressing room after the show, it was most likely because Charles and Tequin had taken the cheating too far and that Diana was worried that they were likely to get caught, which they were. Years later, the host of the show, Chris Terrett, was interviewed and said that he thought Charles seemed nice but dim, though he was interesting to sit across from. thought that was good. (laughs) Nice but dim. Cute but dumb. <laughs> that is just a, a oh god, that's that's the most British insult you could come up with. It is, yeah. The insufferability that in which that was said is just dripping off the page. Can you just imagine being said by a guy in a three-piece suit with a vest and a pocket watch that goes in the side that goes in the chest pocket? He actually he looked a little bit like that. I saw an interview with with Chris Tarrant, yeah. Does he have a monocle? He does, he does not. He does not have a monocle, no. That's the only way it could have gotten more British, is if he had a monocle. Chris said that he didn't notice the cheating in real time because he was too focused on hosting the show and reading the questions and the answers correctly. He didn't think Charles's behavior as a contestant was all that odd, and he said that he didn't even notice the coughing coming from Tequin or Diana. Now... I have to say, I've watched a lot of Millionaire, especially back in the early 2000s. And in the U.S. version, I've seen people do these things that producers thought was odd. Like, I've seen contestants read out the answers multiple times. I've seen them switch back and forth between answers. I've seen them switch the answer at the last minute. So 
that didn't raise a ton of red flags for me. It's obviously the coughing coming from the audience. That was the big red flag. But I mean, do you remember that? I remember, I remember this behavior from some contestants. I mean, it's, you know, I think for a lot of people, it's just, it's like a tick. And I also very much agree that the host is not going to know because he's so focused on what's going on. Now, I'm sure he has producers in his ear. Mm -hmm. I don't think he has them in his ear yelling, holy shit, holy shit, this guy's a liar, liar, pants on fire. They really seem to hold it close to the vest until after the show, yeah. Well, you know, we didn't find cheating except for the for the completely obvious cheating. We found the cheating when we observed the cheating. As for Tequin, irony hit him hard when he was the winner of the fastest finger challenge and played as the next contestant after Charles. He had tried multiple times to be selected on the show and now was his chance. Interestingly, multiple witnesses said that Tequin didn't have a cough prior or after Charles's game. It just had suddenly disappeared. And you can see clips of Tequin's own game that he doesn't cough once or clear his throat. He also appeared quiet, nervous, but very focused, reportedly, before filming Charles's second half of his game when the cheating began. When it was Tequin's turn to play the game, he got the first few questions correct and then his arrogance got the best of him when he incorrectly answered a fairly softball question. Tequin had to resign from his position at a university in Wales and had to sell his home to pay for his fines and his court costs after the cheating scandal came to light. He tried to make it for a while as a public speaker, but it's unclear how successful he was at that. As of 2021, he's in his 70s and still reportedly living in the UK. After the trial, Charles wrote two novels and appeared on several other game shows where they poked fun at his cheating scandal on Millionaire, which he actually also appeared on The Weakest Link, and the host was like giving him shit for it, which is funny, yeah. But my question is, why would you let this man on another game show after this, right? It all seems like that kind of sucks. The one guy, the coffer, basically... They cheated, and the coffer is the one that paid all the price for it. It seems like it, yeah, because Charles became almost like a minor celebrity after that, and then poor Tequin just got screwed, you know? People suck. So he didn't win any money on those other shows either. In 2003, though, Charles and his wife were charged in an insurance fraud scheme, and though he was found guilty, he escaped jail time again. Later, in 2010, Charles lost three toes in a lawnmower accident. So I think that that was pretty much his karma right there, which I, I don't know. I'm not great and probably hurt, but fuck you. You kind of deserved it, you know? <laughs> it appears that Charles and Diana are still married today and haven't been charged with any other crimes. The last game show scandal I want to talk about was very recent. And the game show actually had very little to do with it, although the media certainly didn't agree. Tim Bleefnick from Quincy, Illinois, appeared on Family Feud with his family on a 2020 episode that was filmed in late 2019. A question came up during the show that asked Tim's family, what was the biggest mistake that you made on your wedding night? After slight hesitation, Tim looked at the camera and said, I'm sorry, honey, 
but saying I do. There was a mix of groans and laughs from the audience at his answer, and he immediately started shaking his head, saying, not me, not me. I love my wife. And it was actually the number two answer on the board for the question. I don't know how you feel about it, but on Family Feud, sometimes the answers I don't understand. They're like, oh, you know, so many people would say this answer. And I'm like, well, I don't see that. Like, I don't understand why that's a popular answer, but. You're trying to read people's minds to an extent. The fun in the game, or I guess the comedy of the game, is that if you're trying to come up with these inane answers that most of the time are not going to hit, but every once in a while they do. Tim's family went on to win the game, though they didn't win any extra prize money in the bonus round. So the bonus round in Family Feud, it was something that also would give me some anxiety. I think anything with a timer. And I think something that I learned through this process is that watching game shows as a kid definitely contributed to my anxiety as an adult. There's a neuroses that comes from it for me, too, that it was, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it's not just me. But do you remember with the bonus round how it was two different people from the same family? And then the second person couldn't guess, you know, the same answers as the first person. It would Yeah, and off the time it was like, your brother got you four points, you need 196. Good luck with that. You got your work cut out for you. So, but I, that always was very nerve wracking. And then I would get mad at the contestants because it's like, you're a fucking moron. Like, I know you're, you're on the spot. There, there's the audience in front of you. There's the host and the timer. But like, this was the best you came up with. Name something you bring to a party. Pants. But yeah, I was, I always thought that was. Like, sometimes I do wonder if, like, part of that is just a setup, basically setting up Steve Harvey for one-timers. Mm-hmm. I could see that. Fast forward to February of 2023. Tim and his then-estranged wife, Becky, were going through a very contentious divorce. The two had met while in college and started dating two years after graduating. Her family reports that Becky was very happy in her marriage for the first five years, but over time, Tim became very manipulative, did not help around the house or with their three kids, and didn't support her decision to go back to school to get a nursing degree. Tim said that he was worried about the stress that it would cause her and later denied that he didn't step up to help with the the kids or around the house. Tim would go on to file for divorce, apparently after refusing to go to marriage counseling. Tim wouldn't discuss the specifics of the divorce, only saying that Becky's personality had changed and she had become a lot more stressed out after becoming a nurse. The two fought over everything in the divorce, money, the house, the custody of the kids. She told her family and friends that he was having an affair, but this is something that he denies to this day. It got so bad at one point that they both filed for orders of protection from each other both of which were denied by a judge. They were, however, told to stay away from each other without a formal court order. His social media posts around this time were odd, vaguely violent, and described as dark, sarcastic, and a bit racist. Becky's sister also said that Tim appeared to be losing his mental health as the contentious divorce wore on, And that Becky even told her family and friends that if something happened to her, to look at Tim first. That's never a good sign. Before the divorce was final, 
Becky began dating a new man in early 2023. On February 14th, 2023, Becky and her new boyfriend spent Valentine's Day together at her home when she reported to neighbors that there was an unidentified man lurking around her backyard. A little over a week later, on February 23rd, Becky never picked up her three boys from school, and her father went over to her home only to find her in her upstairs bathroom, dead from multiple gunshot wounds. Neighbors first thought that there was a prowler and murderer on the loose, but after police talked to Becky's family, Tim was immediately a suspect. He was arrested and charged with her murder two weeks after her death. In the early morning hours of February 23rd, Tim left his three sleeping boys, ages 12, 10, and 5, at his home when he apparently rode a bike about a mile or so to Becky's home. He got on the roof and broke through a window using a crowbar into one of his son's rooms in her home. He found her in her bedroom and chased her into the bathroom, where she attempted to call 911 around 1 a.m. The phone was knocked out of her hands and was later found by police behind the bathroom door. Becky was shot 14 times with a 9mm gun, and one shot completely missed her. Tim had called his father-in-law that day to ask him if he had heard from Becky as no one had heard from her all day. He also called the school prior to the discovery of the body to ask them not to let the boys walk home alone, indicating that he knew she wasn't going to pick them up. Tim's arrest made national news because of his appearance on Family Feud and his now infamous comment that he made on the show in 2020. At his trial, even more damning evidence came out. Though there was no murder weapon or bloody clothes ever found, and investigators couldn't definitively match the shoe print found at the crime scene to Tim's, DNA could not rule him out as the murderer, but it wasn't clear that it ruled him in either. I don't I don't know if they had trouble or there was like maybe cross-contamination from the sons going back and forth. It, it wasn't really clear on that. Multiple boxes of 9mm bullets as well as shell casings were found in his home that matched the shell casings that were found around her body, as well as a crowbar. Now, you're going to love this next part. His internet search history was even worse. He did multiple Google searches, likely in the days and weeks before Becky's murder. Some of those Google searches included, can I open a door with a crowbar? How to open any door by lockpicking it? How to make a homemade pistol silencer? How can I check if a gun is registered to me? How to wash off gunpowder residue? Can you identify if a shotgun was fired? How many cops are there in Quincy, Illinois? And what is the average response time of Quincy Police Department? What do you think about those internet searches? People are just dumb. Tim's defense attorney would argue that these searches had no date or timestamp on them, so anyone could have made these searches. Now, the Google searches were done on Tim's phone, so there's a couple of things I want to point out here. So first, if the searches were done on his phone... Arguably, the only other people that would have easy access to his phone were his three boys. And is it just a coincidence that one of them made all these searches? Second, I'm wondering why these searches didn't have timestamps on them. 
It wasn't really clear in the documentary if this was just an oversight or they legitimately weren't there. Do you have any thoughts on that? There had, there's usually some sort of internet trail. Yeah, that's what I didn't understand. And usually, I mean, listen, I'm not, I'm not an expert in, in criminal trials, but usually you can find that out, I would think, fairly easily when a search was made. Because if, if the phone doesn't have a history of it, Google would have a history of it. I guess my only thought on this, and this wasn't said in the documentary, you know, like more recently, I know that like cell phone companies and probably Google and social media, like give police a harder time releasing these records. And the time between Tim's arrest and the trial was so fast that maybe they didn't have time to obtain them. It's, it's my only thought might be one of those two things. I mean, it may, it may be that, but also too, we've also bounced between they've given police a harder time and they give police everything, mm-hmm. even more than what they even ask for. Yeah. So it's, it's something weird. That's not all investigators found on Tim's phone. Tim had also purchased the bike that he used to ride to Becky's house that night which was found about a half block away from his home the day after the murder. Tim bought the bike on a fake Facebook account that he made under the name John Smith. In the days prior to Becky's murder, Tim was also trying to search for the license plate and the VIN number of the car that belonged to her new boyfriend, the same man that she was home with on Valentine's Day, a little more than a week prior to her death when she noticed a prowler outside her home. Neighbors also had a doorbell cam, and on the night of the murder, they did catch a person riding a bike to and from Becky's house around the time of the murder, but the video was too grainy to prove if it was Tim or not. The motive, of course, was obvious, as Tim was going through a costly divorce and may lose some, if not all, of the custody to his three children. It was further speculated that Becky was going to disclose the fact that her father-in-law, had child abuse allegations against him, though he was never charged and they were never proven, but they thought that she was going to reveal this to the public and in court records. Tim's attorneys barely put on a defense for him, calling zero witnesses, and said that they, quote, ran out of time and money. They portrayed Tim as a small-town family man who was a local sports hero in high school and college. They argued that he had an alibi as he was home with his sleeping children that night. Tim was an easy target for investigators, and divorce didn't equal murder. Unsurprisingly, Tim was found guilty of the murder and home invasion in August of 2023. The judge in the case admonished him at the sentencing hearing, saying, quote, You researched, you planned, and you shot her 14 times and he proceeded to count out each shot one by one. The judge sentenced him to life in prison without the possibility of parole. I want to show you a picture of Tim. He looks like a squeaky guy, squeaky clean guy. He actually looks like too happy. That's Tim. And then two years later, there is also Tim. Yeah, like you could just tell from the bow tie he was ready to snap. There's always something a little off with with people with bow ties. No offense to anybody that wears bow ties out there, but he just, he looks a little, yeah, 
He looks a little unhinged behind those eyes. Now, I really think, as I mentioned in the beginning, that the media overhyped this and said, you know, oh, you know, he made this comment on Family Feud and even back then, like, he hated his wife and we're not surprised that he killed his wife. I just think, yeah, it was a stupid comment and and maybe at that point they weren't getting along. But, like, I don't know. I just think that was a stretch. I don't know how you feel about it. There's always a infamy to all of these things. The mass media loves kind of a spicy pop culture story. Yeah, that's true. Or a spicy true crime story. You know, when something like this happens, they jump on it because now, you you know, it's the family feud slaying. It's the, it's, they can make kind of catchy, you know, catchy headlines, give it a catchy nickname. And it's in the public consciousness for weeks on end until the next thing comes along. Also, too, the Family Feud guy reminded me there was a viral clip that went around like one of the courtroom shows. I think it was like a couple of years ago. And the guy, one of the, I forget if it was the plaintiff or the defendant, one of those like Judge Judy type of shows. And he goes, and he tells the bailiff, you look like a guy, you look like a guy who hates his wife. And he goes, no, I'm not. And then it cuts to a clip of the guy getting arrested, the bailiff getting arrested for murdering his wife. Oh, God. That's horrific. Yeah. All right. So before we wrap up, I just want to mention a few honorable mentions here. So first off is The Price is Right. So at one point, I didn't get a year on this, but a contestant named Brenton came on stage to play the game Flip Flop, where he had to guess the value of a prize by flipping tiles to choose his answer. He very intentionally hit the button to reveal the answer instead of guessing. And Bob Barker, the host of the time, slowly walked off stage looking really pissed. He returned a few moments later and begrudgingly gave Brenton the prize anyway. I wouldn't have given him the prize. Like, you clearly cheated. Like, get the fuck off the stage. No, producers, I'm sure, told him, like, just give him the prize and get him off the stage would would be my thought. He's lucky that Bob Barker didn't spay or neuter him. Bob Barker also faced numerous sexual harassment and wrongful termination lawsuits over the years. One former model on the show got fired right after returning from maternity leave, and she sued him as well. I remember, like, the cover story was like, Bob Barker, like, prices right affair accusations. Will it ruin the show? I think there was a lot of hot water that he got himself into. And I, I think it was for the most part, it was kept quiet as much as it could be. Cause the, I mean, the show was huge for so long. I don't think it's as huge now, but definitely back eighties and nineties. So they really protected him, which was not great. On a Spanish version of the game show, name that tune, a celebrity model was using Shazam to help a contestant that she was paired with essentially cheat. During filming, she was caught in the act and she was allowed to continue playing and the host and the audience seemed to think it was more humorous than anything. But it's like, did they take points away? Like, he, she cheated, you know? How can you do anything other than punish them? Also, yeah. to the prices Right point, Drew Carey is a real one. He's a good one. He is. Clearly not had these scandals, that's for sure. No, he actually paid for meals for striking writers. 
So there's also been a couple minor Jeopardy and Wheel of Fortune scandals that mostly just played out on social media. Both shows got in hot water over the years for revoking prizes from contestants who pronounced answers incorrectly. One kid on Kids Jeopardy spelled Emancipation Proclamation wrong, and Alex Trebek took all his money. I will say that one of my pet peeves with Jeopardy is that if you you should win whatever money you earn. If you have $20,000 but come in second, you should get the whole 20000 not two. No, I agree with you, yeah. Well, let me ask you this. We talked about a lot of more so in the 50s where they were faking and scripting shows. Do you think they still do that to some degree now, like orchestrate certain things? Or what do you think about that? I don't think they orchestrate certain things. Like I do kind of, it is kind of interesting because I'm assuming like with Jeopardy, I don't know how many times they, they record in like a day. I don't know like how long you have to be out there if you keep winning. I think it's a lot of shows. They try to, they only film to my recollection, only like certain months of the year. Like it's very, yeah, it's a lot in one day. I mean, I I wouldn't surprise me. I, I think maybe on other shows they do it. I doubt they do it on Jeopardy. I don't think that they're faking the shows like they did back then, because obviously there's a law against that. But I do think where they can, I guess, get some wiggle room is with the contestants and who they want to choose. And, and kind of like we talked about in part one, you know, choosing the most energetic ones and 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 the most likable ones. So I think they still do that for sure. I'm sure they do. And I'm sure there's a whole process to it. Yeah, like you talked in part one about, you know, the whole the studies about, you know, how to get on prices right and stuff like that. Just some points to wrap up here is a couple of things I'm taking away from this is one, the shows back, you know, in 60s, 70s and 80s, they certainly needed to have more background checks. Like they they let some serial killers slip by there, you know, and some con men. Well, and I think also, too, background checks weren't what they were then. True. Yeah, I'll give you that. Yeah. And like I said, I think that, you know, for some of these scandals, the media certainly overhyped it and, and really tied these people to the game shows when it's it's really more of their actions. And the game show is just such a small, small piece of their story. And, you know, as, as we also said, you know, some people, some people are real dumb, as we learned in these episodes. Okay, everybody, that's our show. We wanted to let you know that next week we're going to take the week off for Thanksgiving and spend some time with our families, but we will be back the following week with a really fun episode. Just wanted to ask you before we go, what are some of your favorite Thanksgiving foods? Like, what are you really looking forward to? So when I was a kid, I used to love stuffing. Like, I could eat everything at Thanksgiving except for the turkey. Was it, like, stovetop or was it homemade stuffing? No, it was stovetop. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it is about stovetop. It is very good. It's addicting. You Like, mm-hmm. you could eat, like, a whole, like, pot of it at one sitting. Like, I, we were never a family that did, like, the... That did, like, you know, the, the stale bread as, as stuffing or things like that. Usually it was my grandmother on my mom's side who always did the turkey. And 
we knew the turkey was going to be fine when she would open the door we'd say happy thanksgiving and she would say i fucked up the turkey i love that that's great is that why you don't do turkey now well when she she was the only one that did the turkey and when she passed away now my mom just didn't want to do a turkey just because we don't really like it that much enough to really do it Honestly, it's a lot of work. I am not a cook. I don't like cooking, but there was one year, I don't know, probably 10 years ago that I did make my own turkey and it turned out really well. I was very proud of myself, but I thought, I don't know how people do this every year. I never want to do this again. It's it's very, very difficult because you got to like, you got to watch the thermostat that pokes out of the turkey's ass. You got to, you know, and that's not including like the people that try to fry the frozen turkey and then set their houses on fire every year every year there's somebody the only time after my grandma died that we tried to do turkey we didn't even really do turkey my mom tried to put cold cut turkey in the oven and serve it as regular turkey okay well yeah that couldn't have been good i think for me i like a lot of thanksgiving food like I do like turkey it's not my favorite I certainly like chicken chicken's probably my favorite uh, of the meats but I don't mind turkey now and then I love mashed potatoes I will eat potatoes in pretty much any form the little butter in the middle always good um one of the one of the things I really like is green bean casserole with the um the french onions on top the the dried french onions um I love cranberry sauce I love like the rolls and butter um yeah so i mean i always i always take a little bit of everything usually i what i don't like my aunt growing up used to make um cooked carrots and she used to put like this brown sugar in it and it was it gave it like a sweeter taste and i don't like cooked carrots as it is because they were always very mushy and then you added this brown sugar to it and i'm personally not a fan but have you ever had that so i've never had the green bean casserole and i've never had like the french onions I will tell you, they are very good. But we but we did have the steamed onion, like the steamed carrots. And those were usually good. We used to have the cranberry sauce as well. I think at one point that used to be my favorite thing. I don't know why. I like, and you can like mix it all together. I know that there's people that very much like their food separated. I had a friend that, you know, could not have their foods touching each other, which I get. Some people have their own preferences. But I kind of like mixing like the cranberry sauce and putting like potatoes in it. And that that would that would make me nervous. Like there are some things that like that have to go separate. Like some things I cannot touch. Otherwise, that would make me like nervous and gag. So you're one of those people, huh? Yeah. One of those people. Okay. One of those people who can't have their foods touch. Like only for certain things like mashed potatoes and, and cranberry sauce now. No. no. And also, okay, so now I have to ask now the frozen or the fresh or the fresh cranberry sauce. Well, I we got it in a can. It just you just well, slid yeah. it out of the can and it still had like it. the grooves in it. Yeah. Yeah, that's, but that that's the right kind of can cranberry that is, sauce. That is the correct cranberry. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah, I don't like this like fresh cranberry shit. It's gotta be in the can. It's gotta be processed. It's gotta have eight thousand grams of sugar in it. It's it's yeah, it's gotta be the canned cranberry. Hundred percent. As John Oliver would say, it's nature's useless berry. So turning towards dessert. So what's your favorite pie? Pumpkin. Mm. I don't like the consistency 
of things. Like I, I just, yeah, that like that the top of it, I just can't, I, I personally, I like more of the fruity pies, like uh, apples, probably my number one, but I also like, I like a good cherry pie. Don't mind a blueberry pie. Peach pie is great. With a little vanilla ice cream on the side. It's always good. But yeah, I just, I I'll eat a piece of pumpkin pie. That's my only option. I mean, usually I'll skip it if that's it, but yeah, I just can't, I can't with the consistency. I see. I never liked the taste of apple. No, not an apple person. No. Any other holiday or any other Thanksgiving traditions that you like? Do you ever do you watch the Thanksgiving Day Parade? My parents will usually watch the Thanksgiving Day Parade for Santa, mm-hmm. and then they'll they'll decide based on how the Santa looks whether it was a good Santa or not. Gotcha. They're they're very judgmental about Santa, huh? Basically, they'll say, "Oh, that's a nice Santa. He looks mm-hmm. like a nice Santa." Yeah, I remember watching the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. You know, when I was growing up fun as a kid to see all like the cartoon characters and stuff well, and... it was fun as a kid oh i think it was like 25 years ago it was like in our lifetime when the barney balloon fell apart i do not remember that we just wanted to say that we are very thankful for our listeners and we've done this for a couple months now and it's something that we really enjoy and we want to continue to grow the community and interact with you guys and we have a really good listener following so thank you guys so much for that Everyone have a happy and safe Thanksgiving if you celebrate it, uh, knowing what Thanksgiving can also represent for especially people in the indigenous communities. Yeah. And we just wish everyone peace and love during this holiday season. All right. And we'll see you in a couple of weeks, guys. Bye, everyone.